What is up, hoopers, analytics, bad guys, bucket getters, boosters, blue bloods, and new bloods? On today's episode, we are talking Amani Bates and the Memphis program. What's going on there? We'll also be talking about our new bloods and blue bloods of the week. Later, we talk to Connor Hope and Brian Roth of HeatCheckCBB.com and Hope and Roth, the podcast, about who our potential standouts in the tournament are, both teams on the rise, top two seeds that could go down, and Kemba candidates. Buckle up. Let's go, let's go. Hey there, basketball world, and welcome to New Bloods. This is Tuck Clary. I write for Busting Brackets and Slipper Still Fits. And joining me, he's got the chest cavity to back down anyone down low from Zagaholic. It's Josh Linky. Yo. Also joining me, he's got Imani Bates' dad, Elgin, on speed dial, getting ready to get some big bags dropped his way. It's Kyle Sessions. Happy to be here, Tuck. And lastly, he's in talks to get to be on the tree of your favorite program, and he's about to risk it all for some Don's late night basketball action. It's Austin King straight from DraftKings. What up, boys? All right, fellas. So a lot has happened since we last talked, even though it was just a matter of days. Uh, maybe the biggest story is whatever the hell is going on at Memphis State. Ah, the beautiful, beautiful Memphis State, once a glorious program under Josh Pastner, has now been denigrated by uh, Penny Hardaway. Uh, We really need to talk about what is going on in Memphis because this is a place where top-level recruits are going and wasting away their careers. Um, You see guys like Imani Bates who come in as – Uh, Guys that were tabbed, you know, two years ago as the next LeBron James. Now, maybe that's a problem of the media. Uh, I certainly think it is. I'm not sure it's fair to be telling 15 and 16 year old kids that they're going to be the greatest basketball player in the history of the game uh, when they're far from developed uh, emotionally, uh, maturity wise and just basketball wise. Um, I think it's completely unfair, Um, but it is what happens within our media context. And that's really affected Imani and his play at Memphis. So I kind of want to just run through uh, for people that might not know the Imani Bates saga and what happens to an extremely talented kid uh, that gets overhyped and kind of has this fall from grace. Uh, So it starts out, uh, Bates is from Michigan. Um, he is tabbed as the number one recruit in the class of 2023. He commits to the local school, which is Michigan State and Tom Izzo. Uh, his junior year, uh, after he's kind of named all of this, his freshman and sophomore year of high school, his dad, um, and some will criticize him for doing this. Uh, I understand it as a conservative move to try to protect your child. Uh, He starts his own prep academy, uh, Ipsy Prep, um, where he basically started a school just to have a team for Amani to play on. They brought on players that they wanted that would fit around uh, Amani, and they actually had their first game against Chet Holmgren and Team Sizzle. Um, Chet ultimately beat out uh, Amani, but it was a game where Amani showed that he was a legitimately great 
uh, prospect and worthy of the kind of praise that he was getting at the time. Uh, ultimately, he decides to decommit from Michigan State. Uh, people thought for a while that he was going to go to the overtime elite. He was going to go to the G League Ignite, kind of go that prep to pro route immediately, skip college uh, and do that kind of development. Uh, but in late August, right before school starts, um, he enrolls at Memphis. He reclassifies. So he's 17 years old. He goes to Memphis and then things start to slide. Yeah. So folks got really concerned about Amani Bates's uh, development. Uh, Memphis, uh, conducted a pro day early, early on before the basketball season started. Uh, their pro day was back in October. And at that pro day, uh, Amani Bates was measured at six foot nine uh, and weighing in at 190 pounds. And granted, with the amount of people that have been defending Chet Holmgren on this podcast because of his size, six foot nine and 190 pounds is not a lot better in terms of filling out a frame. At six foot nine, he has a wingspan of six feet seven and a quarter, which is not necessarily great. But yeah, that's a negative wingspan. That's not what you want. Yeah, uh, a negative wingspan affected Demontis Sabonis' draft stock. It affected Brandon Clark's draft stock, which obviously, looking at their player development in the NBA, is not necessarily a, a telltale sign of what a player can be, judging by their uh, wingspan, but. At the same time, we then got Amani Bates's standing vertical jump. And his vertical jump was 24 and a half. That is not good. I believe that was about what my vertical jump was in high school. That, and that's not impressive. That is the vertical jump of a high school Austin King. That is the vertical jump of Club Trillion Mark Titus, a walk-on for Ohio State. <laughs> that standing vertical is 0.5 inches higher than Luke Garza's vertical in the draft of last year. To give you a perspective, Brandon Clark's vertical, Demontis Sabonis' vertical, a little bit higher than 24 and a half to make up for that uh, lack of wingspan. A little bit, just a little bit. Lightly. I just wanted to point out that the only good player that I could find that's currently playing in the NBA with a vertical under 27 inches was Nikola Vucevic, and he is hardly the high flyer that Amoni Bates was uh, touted to be. Yeah, uh, I don't think Nikola Vucevic was getting called the next LeBron James. I, I also think Nikola Vucevic plays uh, down in the paint and is seven feet tall. Um, I don't yeah. think that's going to be and a Monty Bates shoot. game. Doesn't and can shoot. Jump. Yeah. I, I got to ask, though, like, haven't you all seen highlight tapes of Imani going ham on the rim? Like, I wonder about the validity of some of these numbers. I mean, I'm not saying they're not real numbers that were measured at that moment. But do you think he was putting in the effort? If, Maybe he should have been. If they're not, why is Memphis putting this out? Like, this is part of my major problem with the Memphis program. Is, why put it out at all? Yeah, don't do that. Like, you are absolutely tanking the draft stock of the most important recruit that you have ever gotten in the history of your program. He, Ar like, arguably, he is the most important recruit they've ever got. And they have absolutely tanked his stock. He went from being a player that was going to stay there two years because he's not eligible this year for the draft. He could have gone to the draft in 2023 and been the projected number one pick. That man would have been making about $10 million in his fourth year of that contract. Now he's projected to be in the mid to late 20s 
of next year's draft, which means maybe you're making like $2 million, $3 million. That and, is generational wealth that and, you just lost. And additionally, um, even if the vertical jump information was uh, smudged up a little bit and not entirely accurate, if we're going to take the wingspan as accurate, we also have to consider the fact that his hand width was 8.25 inches, which would have been the third smallest hands in the draft last year. And a lot of NBA scouts will tell you that the hand size uh, determining factor is a bigger deal than even the the uh, wingspan for a lot of guys. So in your estimation, Tuck, where does this put Amani Bates on the draft class for, for 2023 at this point? I would say that Amani Bates has gone from a surefire lottery pick to potentially end of the first round. If that's if he doesn't play another game that uh, causes anything for concern, that's if he doesn't uh, go into a transfer portal, end up with another college team or playing the G League Ignite, he could regain ground or he could still lose ground. But right now, if you were to draft him a year from now, he's like, I don't know. He's somewhere between Michael Porter Jr. or uh, Bull Bull in terms of like a, a prospect with a high ceiling, but uh, you just can't depend on the floor whatsoever. I have a hard time thinking that, and, and maybe this is me just being biased based on his time in high school, but I, when I watched him play in high, I, I watched that game against Chet. Like he, it was toe for toe, like the entire game, like Chet and him back and forth, back and forth, both making great plays, highlight reel, you know, on both sides. Um, I realized that defense is not always necessarily the number one priority in those types of games, but you know, ultimately, like, I, th I think Amani Bates is still potentially a top 10 level talent in that draft class. It's just a matter of him, you know, going out there and proving himself next year. For sure. He definitely has the potential. But we've also seen plenty of high school players. You guys remember Cliff Alexander? We're all Blazer fans. Like, that guy came in as a top five pick. Surefire. Unbelievable high school player. Guy got drafted in the second round. Played like two years for the Blazers and he was never seen again. I don't even know if he's playing overseas. Like that is not like an uncommon thing. And that's what I'm worried about with Imani Bates. And this is why what Penny has done is so concerning. And for any player that wants to go to a good program and like is considering Memphis, they need to take what has happened with Imani Bates as a cautionary tale. So let's kind of take a snapshot of Memphis's actual basketball season. They start out 5-0. They're playing great. Amani scores uh, multiple 15-plus point games. And then they play Sicko Cyclone Kyle's team, the Iowa State Cyclones, and they melt down. They lose 5 of 6. Somehow they beat Bama. I have no clue what is going on with Alabama this season. They have a COVID controversy. Penny's players weren't available against Tennessee because they weren't vaccinated. Penny told everybody they were vaccinated, that 90% of his team was. Well, he only had four eligible players because of contract tracing. So that's just one failure of leadership. Um, during this time, Penny melts down in front of the press. He also, by the way, when these COVID tests are coming out and his players are being brought into protocol, because he's not willing to fall on the sword there he just kind of says we don't know when they'll be back we don't know we don't know 
he just continually defers and defers and defers, putting more of the responsibility on owning up to the situation on the players rather than the leader of the program. Another yeah. great example of why are you asking me these questions? I don't want to be held responsible for my utter and complete failures. <laughs> Absolutely. And then what does he do? He calls on God. God, please help my point guard play. Um, you know, he makes excuses about having a very young roster. Then he yells at reporters that he works too fucking hard to be criticized. I'm sorry, but everybody in college basketball works insanely hard. And guess what? They get criticized every single day. That is part of the job. And part of your job as being a head coach is being the one that gets criticized and deflecting it from your players. While everybody talks trash about Coach Cal, and I don't want don't want to be a Calipari stan here, but that man takes bullets for his players every single year. You do not see his players get in controversy. He protects their draft stock. Look at Shaden Sharp right now. He is doing what is best for Shaden Sharp, not what is best for this Kentucky basketball team. And that is why recruits come to him, because he realizes that he is protecting their future and their generational wealth for their family. That is absolutely life-changing money. And that has to be taken seriously. I know fans don't think about that that much because it's hard to imagine just being like, oh, I now have $30 million. That's like, it's hard for us to grasp that, but that's tangible for these kids. And Amani is feeling that slip through his fingers right now. Um, and so what's happening now? There's um, some reports from Jake Fisher, Bleacher Report, who, at least on the NBA end, is a legitimate source of information. On February 1st, he comes out with a tweet saying, Sources, Amani Bates will not play in Memphis's game at Cincinnati on Thursday, as his future with the program has suddenly come into question. Bates has been projected as a 2023 NBA draft prospect and had previous contact with overtime elite and overseas opportunities. Now, Amani's father, Elgin, comes out um, and in a Jeff Borzello piece for ESPN, uh, he responds saying he had an appointment to see a specialist back home about his back. Uh, he's been having pain the past three weeks and we're going to figure out what's going on. The questions are, why is he going back to Michigan during the season? Um, why does he not trust Memphis's team doctors? Uh, that's a serious question to be asked. All right, so let me let me flip the script for a moment here, because like we're talking about the trash program that is Memphis at this juncture. We're talking about the you know potential for Amani leaving the team and ent enter in some salty fans on Twitter. There's this guy Johnny Carver who pops up on a tweet and says, I'm all for player autonomy and kids making money, but leaving your team mid-season to pursue opportunities overseas seems like a bad decision. I don't understand why he wouldn't just leave in April when the commitment of the season is done. This seems drastic given the timing. Look, Johnny Carver can all the way off, for lack of a better term, because at the end of the day, this dude, like, he's acting like these kids are under contract with their their colleges he's acting like Amani Bates has anything that he owes the school over himself in this circumstance like like we talked about just a moment ago Penny Hardaway is responsible for this problem at Memphis 
Penny Hardaway is the one you're going to blame for this situation. You're not going to blame Imani. You're not going to blame none of the other guys on the roster. These types of idiotic tweets that people throw out and blame or victimize the coach and the program when it's actually, you know, the program itself that's causing the problem like that. I'm just done with that crap. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it is uh, Penny's fault, not just on like a, Oh, he didn't handle the health of COVID well. Like he's not providing leadership. He's not taking like the deflection away from his star player. But he's also failed as a basketball coach and creating an effective offense for Amani Bates to thrive in. Um, Amani Bates right now his offensive rating is ninety point eight. Uh, he is shooting thirty two percent from three, forty four percent from two. Uh, and he has no point guard play. Penny let Boogie Ellis walk to USC. Obviously, Boogie can do whatever he wants, but he's the one that transferred to Memphis and wanted to be there and clearly wanted to leave Penny because he did not empower him enough in that offense. He did not create an effective uh, offense for Amani or Boogie. Uh, he did not prioritize getting a veteran guard in the transfer portal. Then he wants to blame having a young team on the reason for their struggles. Um, and ultimately, he has completely and utterly tanked the stock of Amani Bates. I think it's important to just like, we obviously don't know where he's going to go, right? I mean, there was the tweet that he's leaving. There was the retraction. His dad came in, talked about how this is kind of all possibly just a bunch of smoke and mirrors and that he's maybe going to stay and he might be happy there. But at the end of the day, I agree with you, Josh. Like We're talking about the fact that these guys need to be able to do what's best to get to the league. Like it's no, I mean, for a lot of these players, especially guys like Amani, this is, this is a stopover point only because it has to be like college basketball is not necessary for a lot of these guys to get to where they need to go. That's been proved recently. Uh, and Austin's right. Like you're talking about the 2023 rookie salary draft, like salary, they're going to get 10 million a year unless he goes, Below 20th, he's going to be looking at like just under 2 million. So there's a lot of money on the table. He needs to do what's best for him. The thing I, I think that's the most interesting, you know, is that we talk about these players like they have some sort of um, duty, you know, to the school when what's really happening in a lot of these cases is the schools are just riding out the players one year. Like they have to come, they have to be uh, playing at this level for at least one year. And so the schools are lucky to have these players in my mind. And that's where I think that this needs to be, the conversation needs to, needs to surround their decision in that, in that way. So I, I, I completely understand where everybody's coming from. I, and this is coming from a place of, I want everyone to get the bag and as much of that bag as they possibly can get. I will say I'm all for player empowerment, but at the same time, at a certain point, you have to realize that your actions are going to affect your own bag as well. Mm -hmm. I think leaving at this point of the season, you should have left probably 10 games ago when it was clear that it was going to be like this, when it was clear that Penny didn't have a plan, when it was clear that Penny wasn't going to put you in a place to succeed. I don't know how this really looks in the heart of conference play to do this. I, I think ultimately it should warrant a conversation from uh you know scouts gms about hey where's this kid's heart at is a real question that has to be answered when you have a guy that's gone through four different programs in four years mm -hmm. i do think that penny put him in a terrible situation and i do think that this should affect memphis's ability to get recruits moving forward 
but where it was clear that LeVar Ball was pulling levers to get his kids in the best situation that they could possibly be in, I am really miffed by the decision-making of the Bates family if this goes through. I, you know, I just want to throw one last little piece in from the Johnny Carver fan section out there. He literally said in words, it's unfair to Penny Hardaway. He has a personal brand to consider. I don't like it. Look, I, you know, I mean, that's a joke. That's, that's a joke. I just, I, I look at the situation and, and, I don't care whether, you know, we, we could dissect, yeah, he, he should have gone earlier, or maybe he should have never come to Memphis at all, or maybe he should just stay all year, this or that. If Penny Hardaway is driving his players away, if Penny Hardaway is being an ass to these, to these kids that he sold on this program, if he's ruining his legacy, I don't care. I don't care what happens. Like these kids deserve the best situation possible. And that's toxic. Like, I don't, I can't, in good conscience tell Amani that he should have to stay at Memphis if his mental health is suffering. So judging from the conversation on Amani Bates, it's clear that a program is a vital factor in terms of uh, creating the notoriety and heralding nature that is a prerequisite to be a number one overall pick in the draft. So let's talk about programs. Who are the programs right now that are your new bloods and blue bloods of this week? Yeah, so I, I think uh, I'm taking my new blood a different route this week. I'm going with an actual player. I'm going with Chet Holmgren, the unicorn, the man, the myth, the legend, seven foot, one and a half inches of pure developmental prowess over at Gonzaga. This guy has got his three-point shooting percentage all the way up to almost 47% on the year. I've been told all year that Jabari Smith was the best shooting prospect of the bunch, but, uh, I mean, Chet's like 7% higher from three at this point. Then let's talk about his ability to shoot from two. The man is shooting 85%. On, on shots near the rim. I mean, come on. Like, this is absolutely ludicrous. There was a period in the game this evening against San Diego where Chet went on a, a tear over a two-minute period, scoring 11 points, having four rebounds and a block in less than two minutes. Like, I don't, I don't know if there is a better microwave player in the country than Chet Holmgren at this point. Yeah, uh, I just would like to add from this game as well. Um, in an interview, Chet Holmgren said that uh, his biggest inspiration is not his haters, but his lovers, which is incredibly inspiring. You know, far often we talk about who our biggest haters are. We got to get a, a big old chip on our shoulder. But Chet Holmgren, a man for lovers. We are a Chet Holmgren loving podcast. So we're here to spur you on. Chet, we love you deeply. I hope we inspire you. Chet, will you be mine? (laughs) Be our Valentine, baby. (laughs) Josh, do you have any more love on the podcast with with your Blue Blood of the Week? So I'm going with Arizona for the Blue Blood of the Week. Um, That win tonight over UCLA was relatively impressive. It was was good for, for Arizona to bounce back. Um, from that drubbing that UCLA gave them just over a week ago. Um, and, and also, like, you know, the, the narrative is shifting back to the reality that Arizona is potentially up there with as one of the best teams in the West uh, this year. I think Gonzaga has that one seed locked up out West, but 
you know, Arizona and UCLA are definitely in that conversation to land the two seed or even maybe even a, a, a dark horse candidate to get a one seed at the very end, depending upon who else stumbles and falls. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll join <laughs> Josh Linky in the, in the blue blood conversation and talking about this game. Uh, even despite the loss on Thursday night, my blue blood of the week is the UCLA Bruins. In a game where they looked absolutely terrible in the first half, disjointed, really confusing what they were doing with Johnny G. Zhang with two fouls, really confusing what they were trying to accomplish with their shot selection, having Cody Riley just try to hit middies over towering giants rather than working the ball around. It's pretty clear to me that UCLA's floor is really damn good. I mean, despite the fact that they shot, I believe it was 11% from three in the first half, they they were just they were going through dry spells after dry spells. They brought it they brought it back within twelve, and then for the most of the second half, it was a five point game. I think that college basketball is better when UCLA and Arizona are at the top of the Pac twelve and legit contenders. Uh, I would like to spicily talk about whether or not they're truly contenders, the two of them, but that may be a conversation for another pod. But ultimately, I am excited about the possibility of the firepower of Jules Bernard, Johnny Juzang, and Hamey Hawkins. Yeah, Johnny Juzang only playing nine minutes, picking up his second foul with maybe what ten minutes left in the second half or in the in the first half. Yeah, it was early. It was it was super early. And then UCLA goes down, I believe, 17, 18 points with like six, seven minutes. And he just and and UCLA has no offensive creation outside of Jules Bernard, bringing nothing to the table, and he just doesn't bring him in. It's like, bro, you're losing the game by almost twenty points. It's like got to make a run. It's really shocking too, considering how good of a point guard Tiger Campbell is in terms of decision making, taking care of the Mm -hmm. basketball, finding guys that you wouldn't throw in some set more sets than simply getting guys in isolation. If, if Tiger, if Tiger's able to throw into those tight windows, you're basically making him play, play action as a point guard the entire game, which is, you know, not an enviable situation for Tiger in my eyes. No. And he's not a scorer. He just like, he can't do that. He shoots probably less than 20% of his shots at the rim. He's not going to finish around there. He's not going to create for himself. And they just don't run any sets. They ru- they just, you know, roll with the vibes of isolation basketball and hope that Juzang and Jules and Hawkes are going to ball out enough for them to score. But they were at, I think, 0.823 points per possession in the first half. And Arizona was like 1.23. I mean, that's just not going to get it done at all. You're going to get smoked every single time if that's your offensive efficiency. My new blood of the week has to be the Texas Tech Red Raiders yet again. Guns up. Uh, We got tortillas down in Lubbock yet again. Boys were going wild. Uh, That Texas Tech student section feels like, um, you know, I there's always those videos of um, city council meetings where there's just some loon that goes to the podium and yells and berates these elected officials for five minutes of their time and you just see a line of people it's as if they bust the entirety of those people to lubbock to just completely call chris beard horrible names for you know two hours yeah i I think this is the this is a great pick for new blood it was the it was if i wasn't going to go with chet holmgren this is going to be my pick too i think um 
getting that win over Chris Beard was monumental for the Mark Adams regime in in Lubbock. And um, you know, I, I think the this roster just keeps getting better and better as the season progresses. They're the way that they're using Bryson Williams now is it's it's pretty remarkable to see the difference from this team from early this season to now. Um, the development is 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 great, and I, I you know I wouldn't be surprised to see this team knock knock out like an elite eight run or something in the tournament. They're they're that good defensively, and they're starting to figure it out on offense. Blue blood of the week for me, just to balance out uh, this West Coast blue blood love, is uh, going to be for Duke. Um, I. Uh, continue to think that they might be one of the toughest teams uh, for uh, Purdue and Gonzaga and some of these other uh, top teams to match up against. It uh, looks like they're going to win out the rest of their schedule. They don't really play any more tough games. And, uh, you know, this might be their last relevant season. So we want to give them credit where it's due. The one, the one caveat I would throw in there is that they are still – for whatever reason, Shire is still somehow landing huge recruits and in the conversation with, with five stars all over the country. I was reading an article earlier today about Jared McCain, uh, Gonzaga target, and he was talking up Duke. I mean, it's, it's like neck and neck between us and Duke for his services. So, you know, I I, can dream Josh. That's that's all I'm saying. That's true. (laughs) I'll let you dream, buddy. (laughs) No, they're definitely landing some huge guys. Duke is is my blue blood of the week, and it's not because they've been good, because uh, they haven't been. You know, one four straight, uh, had the offensive explosion against the mighty Notre Dame, scoring fifty seven points and shooting less than worse than twenty percent from three. But I've got two questions: Why is Coach K's farewell tour so boring? Like I was expecting fireworks, and for this to be really fun, and then. The other one is why is John Shire doing like all of the halftime interviews and post-game interviews instead of Coach K? I think I think Mike thinks he's already retired at this point, to be honest. I mean, he he looks like he's twiddling his thumbs on the bench most games. And um, you know, the fireworks, I mean, they beat Gonzaga earlier this year. That was that was probably their biggest win of the year. Um, I don't really see this team going that deep in March. I mean, I know a lot of people were early high on them, but I just, I don't know. Like I'm not as, I'm not as sold as on kills running that offense or, um, Ben Caro has had his moments where he's looked great, but he's also had some moments where he's looked pretty damn bad. So, uh, John Shire, the intern, uh, coming to Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) New blood of the week. Um, the Fighting Illini, you successfully took down the Scani's Johnnies, the absolute best and worst team uh, in the in the country right now. Whether or not uh, Johnny's playing well, they're playing well. If not, you know that's how it goes. But uh, you know, big big games for them, and I just wanted to put them on my list for New Blood of the Week because looking back at their schedule, all the hate they've been getting this year, you know, they only really have one bad, truly bad loss to Maryland, and everyone's calling them legit again. I heard on Twitter from somebody that they have the best big in the country on their team. Um, 
So I, I told you that. I, I told you that they have. Oh. Sha- he's not Shaquille O'Neal, but he is Shaquille O'Neal. Okay. 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 Ooh, well. Anyway. Ricey. Yeah. Shout out to the. Uh, that's to that's Illinois. a John Rothstein treat, by the way. That's not that's not me. Oh, I'm is not, it? Yeah. I'm not John Rothstein. I can't remember where I saw it. It's just floating around there that Kofi is the best big in college basketball. So I had to, you know, put him I, up there. That's obviously. I don't understand. True. So Kofi, Kofi's fine. He's a great player. He had 37 points and uh, what with like 12 rebounds or something in that game against against Wisconsin. Children. But white children. But at the end of the day, like, c- come on, like, like as far as comparing Kofi to Shaq, do, do, I don't think people realize that Shaq, like the level of passer that Shaq was, the level, like, like how well he facilitated that offense out of the high post at uh, in in LA, like. Shaq was probably like, he was, well, I mean, he was probably Jokic before Jokic. I mean, let's be real. Like in his era, he was the best passing big in the league. So I don't see that out of Kofi. Do you? Uh, Sir, you're forgetting about Mehmet Okur. (laughs) All right. Oh my God. Uh, Cuts with Austin. (laughs) I don't, I don't see that comparison really at all. I mean, he's big and he's, strong and he gets down low and he plays bully ball but i mean shaq's college stats were out of this world and then obviously his career speaks for itself once he got Dude, they're not NBA, even the so. same universe yeah. of player <laughs> not in the uh, same universe okay so maybe not shaq <laughs> yeah. but the comparisons that kofi's getting on ken palm is tyler zeller <laughs> 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 not even Cody, not even the good Zeller. For new blood of the week, this will shock nobody. I have the Iona Gales for making what is probably the best decision made uh, in college basketball this year, which is locking Rick Pacino up for a lifetime contract. Uh, it has not been official quite yet, uh, but that is the plan, and they are looking to move to a new conference. Um, I'm curious what you guys think right now. They're in the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference. Uh, but do you think like an A10 move is possible? So I, I, I do want to uh, think about Iona moving to a bigger conference. But also I want to uh, posit the question, what does a lifetime contract for a vampire look like? Like how, how will college basketball still exist for as long as Rick Patino exists? He is college basketball. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, Rick Patino was like Rick Patino was like the portrait of Dorian Gray, where once you (laughs) kill Rick Patino is the only way for the NCAA to end. Yeah, that's the only way the cartel that is the NCAA actually dies is killing Rick Patino. And that's never going to happen. And Tuck, I don't know what you're talking about. That Metro Atlantic slander is ridiculous. They have Quinnipiac and Monmouth, two of the greatest political polling schools of all time. So (laughs) I need some respect on that conference like it's not always about basketball we want we want some uh, academic work to get done to. shout out to the 538 conference <laughs> shout, out to, <laughs> shout out to all my poli sci majors exactly what i love about that conference is that they potentially will have as many bids one year as the plus or minus polling air on their polls <laughs> two they got they got two point four <laughs> burnt burnt sienna Oh, Catherine oh, of Siena. Uh-huh. You guys put some respect on Catherine of Siena, one of the great saints 
of the medieval period. I'm just going to bring out like religious deep cuts on this podcast. Yeah. Every single week. Yeah. I feel like that conference Rick- is the East coast <laughs> version of what everyone thinks the West coast conference actually is. Yeah. But oh, you know, the WCC, I don't know. It was like what? 10 places higher and the Ken Palm conference rankings every year. Why, why yeah. isn't there, why isn't Monmouth or Quinnipiac called the pollsters? That should be their team name. Like <laughs> let's just lean lit. into it. So a 10, is that like, is Iona, let's say we give Rick Patino 10 years. Does does Iona win a national championship? No, 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 no. I'm not years. saying that. But like, I know. what <laughs> is, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to go too insane here. <laughs> I am trying to stay grounded. But like, could they potentially be a top three mid-major, a top four mid-major in college basketball? Ten Why not? Rick Patino, get them in a better conference. Like, could they ever run like, Little Chicago. The team that Patino has right now at Iona is more than capable of finishing in the top three or four of the A10 this year. Mm-hmm. So Iona, as far as with bad recruits, by the way. Yeah, I mean, the, mostly like he had some holdovers. There was some transfer movement, like you know stuff like that. But like th- this isn't this roster is not like talent that Patino handpicked and brought into Iona himself. No. no, I mean this. If you give Patino the lifetime contract. If you move Iona to the A10 or a, a like conference, and and then you you know you start seeing Patino's recruits show up, heck yeah. yeah! I mean they could they could easily win the A10 a few times over the next decade. I, I mean, mean he's literally winning with unranked guys. That's who he's bringing in as recruits. Literally I, zero star players. Rochelle, New York, not very far from New York City. It's an 86% acceptance rate to get into Iona. I think Sky is legitimately the limit. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's make Iona the best mid-major program in the country. That is the Shout out to my guy, Jim Mezzano, for having me on the radio show earlier this year. He's a huge Iona guy. Um, Real good friends with Patino and the whole coaching staff there. Uh, he told me, he told me the Siona team had a chance to be special this year. And I, I agree. I really do. Like, like we talked about with uh, Connor and Brian, I, th- I think that this team could potentially uh, be a deep upset candidate in the tournament. Uh, speaking of Iona, Arizona, Texas Tech, all programs that were mentioned in this Blue Blood, New Blood conversation. They're also in our conversation with Connor Hope and Brian Roth of Heat Check and the Hope and Roth podcast where we looked at the NCAA tournament, who some potential teams to buy are, who some potential teams to sell are. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right, joining us today from Heat Check, and the Hope and Roth podcast is Connor Hope and Brian Roth. You can catch them on Twitter at, at B-R-A-U-F-33 and at Condorian FM. Thanks for joining us, Brian and Connor. Thanks for having us. Appreciate you guys yeah. having us on. No, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be a fun time. Yes. Yeah, uh we brought you on after uh a while back, you and uh, you guys did a draft on your podcast, thinking of uh, the the most likely uh, champions uh, for the NCAA tournament coming up, and we thought that would be great fun to have you guys on to talk about uh, a little more uh, side narratives coming up with this tournament. You know, 
I'm excited. I've, I love the drafting stuff. I think it was fun. It was one of the most fun podcasts I think that we've done. Uh, and Connor enjoyed it because of the teams he was able to get with the first pick. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. Connor, who was, who, who was the pick you, what was the pick that you were most excited about landing? Um, I think, well, I think Brian's reaction as he heard me talking about Wisconsin um, knowing that it was going to be Wisconsin and seeing him not, not because he wanted Wisconsin, but like viscerally disagree with the fact that I was picking Johnny Davis. Um, but I think the biggest, the, the biggest steal for me, um, was probably Kentucky, uh, getting them seventh. Um, I don't know so where, they, where did I get Auburn? You got them six. You picked them right before Kentucky. <laughs> All right. You know, my instant reaction when I saw the draft was that Connor, like, pillaged you. Like, it was, like, straight up, you know, like, I don't know, like, complete ownership. But in retrospect, looking back at it, that Auburn pick was very sly. Um, and the UCLA pick at three, like, that was solid as well. Like, they're peaking now. So, yeah. Thank I, you for I, for talking about them and not the Seton Hall pick. That's, um, <laughs> okay, there's going to be no Seton Hall slander on this podcast. My heart is in Newark, and they don't have Bryce Aiken right now, so let's just chill out on that. I believe in Seton Hall. Austin is always hauling. Yeah, I'm hauling, baby. Let's put some respect on Kevin Willard's name. And Austin. to Brian's credit, I mean, he, he picked Alabama, which he's going to be sweating through that first weekend. Um, but they're not going to lose in that second weekend. I guarantee it. Alabama will lose in the final four or the first weekend. Guaranteed they will play to their competition in the in the Sweet 16 Elite Eight. So uh, I don't know how good that makes you feel, Brian, but um, that's, that's where I am with Alabama that, right now. All right. So let's kick it off with the first category being dark horse favorites. So if I'm understanding correctly, these are, uh, in terms of Vegas odds, teams that are plus 3,000 to get to the Final Four National Championship and win it all. Right. We decided like on teams that, not not like your your top two seeds probably, but like, you know, other teams kind of at or below that level. Why don't we kick it off with the guests as uh, that's a polite thing to do. Brian, who is your dark horse favorite? So kind of you. Uh, in terms of like a legitimate Final Four dark horse national championship team, I probably would have said this before Monday or uh, Tuesday night. So I, I don't want to seem as much prisoner of the moment as it's going to come off, but I would take Texas Tech. Uh, defensively, they've been elite all season long. Um I actually wrote back in uh, when the calendar flipped over the 2022 um, big 12 play was starting and Texas Tech's offense had been absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrible. Like kind of worse than what we had seen with them under beard. And then, you know, right after that, they went and beat Baylor and Kansas and all that. Cause that's, <laughs> that's just how it goes, but they, they figured out their offense. They they're utilizing Bryson Williams a lot more figured out that Kevin O'Banner likes to shoot threes. Who would have thought, um, the fact that their offense has come around with that elite defense, they're my pick from off off that top group to potentially win a title. That's Ryan. an excellent pick. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, we are a Texas Tech podcast. So I think the biggest Heads question up. we had is what is going to happen with their point guard play? Like we know in the tournament that point guard play is the most important thing. And uh, who's their point guard? Like I actually don't know. Who are they running their action through? Is it going to just – you know, mostly be through Bryson Williams. Uh, yeah. Is McCuller going to turn into a point guard, even though he's really a shooting guard? McCuller will be the guy who brings up the court, brings the ball up the court. Um, 
Williams will probably be some more of that high post facilitator, like he has been, at least getting a touch collapsing the defense. Um, it's a concern, but it's a concern for probably 80% of the teams that are going to make the tournament this year, right? There, there aren't many good guards across the country. So in a normal year, it would kill them. This year, I think it may just limit them. But mm-hmm. we'll roll the dice. I, I think that's as good of a gamble as any out there. The yep. thing that's fascinating to me most about Texas Tech is the sheer number of six foot five through six foot eight guys that they trot out. They are truly positionless on that court. And um, I, I agree, Bryson Williams, like he's really turned it on as of late. Great. So we have Texas Tech for Brian Connor. Who would your selection be? I probably would have been Texas Tech. I think when Brian and I do, because we're going to add, I think, two teams or something right before the tournament, Texas Tech is probably going to be the first one picked. But mm-hmm. it came as a surprise to me that Wisconsin is still at plus 4,000 uh, to win the national championship. Uh, they were my last pick in the draft. I, I stay, They're tied, I think, for second right now um, with the most quadrant one wins, which proves that they can win those games that they need to to get deep in the tournament. And they have one of if not the best just individual scoring talents in the country uh, in Johnny Davis. So um, with, with Texas Tech off the board and discussed by, uh, by Brian, I, I, I just like this Wisconsin team. Um, they have a lot of fight. They've got a, a true star um, and, and a nice kind of Robin uh, in, in Davis in it, whether you like him or dislike him to, to, to Johnny Davis. Um, and, and a lot of, very solid role players around those two. So the, the Badgers um, are a team that, that I don't, that have a, I think a really solid floor to them and, and we've seen what their ceiling can be. So if teams slip up, Wisconsin could, could make a very deep run. Wisconsin and Texas Tech were two of the, the teams I was thinking about. So those are definitely the, board the early. top two picks for yeah, sure. You guys, you guys were kind enough to give us the first two. So we look good now. <laughs> it just means we get to take more insane picks, which is really what we want to do anyway. So yeah, love it. we'll give you the boring stuff so I can let, give my heat here. Let's raise the spice level. Josh, <laughs> who who do you have after Texas Second Wisconsin are gone? Well, this one's probably is going to be somewhat spicy, but I'm going with Providence. Um, I feel like Providence oh. is kind of they're kind of riding low, like nationally, like a lot of people are sleeping on them still. I know that they're not necessarily killing it metric wise yet, um, you know, but they haven't, they haven't, you know, lost a game since the beginning of the month. Um, they've, they've handled teams like Xavier and Marquette um, over the last little bit here. Um, and, and really like both of their losses are top 100, you know, granted that Virginia loss probably doesn't look the best, but, you know, overall, I think that that Providence has a lot of talent and, um you know, I, I would really like to – I would like to see what their matchups are going to be like. But if, if the matchups are good in March, this team could, in my opinion, go pretty deep. Josh, you want to know why the analytics can't quantify how good Providence is? It's because why? you cannot quantify the will of God. This is the <laughs> will of God on the side of the Dominican squad, the Friars coming through, you know, to, to spite Tuck's Jesuit agenda – the Friars are coming through. St. Thomas Aquinas is showing up, and the Lord is blessing the Friars. And, you know, Ken Palm can tell us that it's all luck, but really it is the providence of the Lord. 
I, I, I can't disagree at this point, yeah. to be honest. I, I, I think I know why you can't disagree because this is a theological conversation, which maybe appeals to, um, like four people. The who big follow East. Basketball. Let's just call oh. the, let's just say it appeals to the big East. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, I've yeah. got the Summa right next to me in English and Latin. You know, I am a learned man of Thomas Aquinas and the Dominicans. Let's go Friars. Yeah. Okay, my learned. uh, All right, my learned man, Austin. Who do you take after these three teams are off the board? I am going with the Jesuit school. This is going to be the spiciest pick of them all. A lot of you think that I'm going to go with one team from the Big East, but I'm going with another. I am taking a team that is plus fifteen thousand. The Marquette Golden Eagles. They are balling out in the Big East right now. They are top three and four in offense and defense in conference, third in offense, fourth in defense. They are top 25 in defense. Their offense is improving significantly. We know what Shaka Smart can do when it comes to the tournament. Are they going to win the whole thing? Absolutely not. There's 0% chance. So wait, they're going to lose to Abilene Christian? All right, watch your mouth. That was at Texas. <laughs> that is a cursed program. That is a cursed program, which we have discussed on this podcast. I think that that was a Texas problem, not a Shaka Smart problem. Marquette is a beautiful place for him. They have been killing it in the Big East play. They went on a great run. They took down Villanova. They beat Seton Hall. They beat Providence. They're a legitimately good team, and I expect them to make a run in March. Do do we have any concerns on this pick, uh, friends? Not aside from the obvious ones. Um, <laughs> like they're not that good. <laughs> I, I love the way Justin Lewis is playing, right? Like he has become, I think, a legitimate superstar in college basketball. He won't be billed as such, but uh, he's playing, I, I think, as well as any um, guy his size and his position right now. The reason I would back off Marquette this surge they've been on has corresponded with a pretty big spike in the three-point shooting. Um, they went from right around 30% for the season, which is one of the worst in the country, to if you take what they had done during their six-game win streak and, and during this spurt, uh, their shooting percentage would have ranked in the top three in the country from three-point range. Like, that's pretty hot and cold. And Shock Smart's the new coach. It's a new offensive system. They had a lot of young guys, so it, it could be something that they're just settling into what they're doing and who they are. Maybe. More than likely, though, they regress to the mean a little bit. For sure. And, and the thing is, they do have legitimate defense. Like, they have a rim protector in Quath that, like, we saw, Absolutely. you know, Zaga fans watched him at Oklahoma, and, like, you know, Timmy did well against him, but he still blocked a lot of his shots. He was a really good interior presence, and that's you know going to be really important when it comes to March is just protecting the rim. Teams get nervous. They don't hit shots. They try and go inside. And when you have a legitimate rim protector, that can take you places and win you a few games in March. Okay. Well, uh, I unfortunately have the last pick in this section, but my dark horse favorite, a team that I think with 3,000 plus odd to uh, win it all, uh, is the Michigan State Spartans. Oh. It's yeah, that's uh, <laughs> an interesting pick. Hello to all my haters out there. I think Max <laughs> I think Max Chrissy is a legitimate scorer. I think he's coming into his own. Potentially, if he can carry 
carry the offense quite a bit a bit i think they can do some things i think hauser's a good number two to have potentially with hoggard hoggard but you know i think the rip protection could be a, a big boon for this team come tournament time i i don't know you can you can call me a fraud if you'd like but in my defense there is not much left Thanks to you all. There's there's two other That's teams fair. on the board. You could take Alabama. You could take my beloved Yukon Husky. I cannot you take could have taken Al- Houston. I cannot yeah. take I could have taken Houston, but he I mean yeah, Houston I was thinking about I was thinking about Houston, but Houston's missing uh, their their core pieces. I don't love that. So we finished our dark horse favorites. We're gonna snake around to uh the deep upset candidates. Tuck, you have the first pick this time deep upset candidate all right this is going to be incredibly flagrant and if my michigan state pick didn't kick me out of the place this might i kind of really think there is potential with wake forest all right alondis williams doing something i think alondis williams can do something i think they're i i think they're not terrible at defense which will will help them quite a bit you know they're um they're around 50th 51st in Ken Palm uh I think Alondis Williams uh if he's not taken the spoilers but uh I think he's a potential Kemba candidate um I I I just really think that if Alondis Williams uh sets fire uh really proves to people that he belonged on that Bob, Bob Cousy award list that we could see a team that is potentially the furthest reaching team in the ACC come tournament time. He almost had a triple double tonight. He was like one assist off, I believe. My thing with Williams is his assist to turnover ratio. Um, I mean, we're not talking Andrew Nemhard numbers here. It's just so. about okay. <laughs> you want to talk about Andrew Nemhard? He has a lower turnover rate than Andrew Nemhard does. Okay, but but let's let's think about this for a moment. What? Based on the the most recent game, he had he had nine assists and four turnovers against Pitt. Against Pitt, the mighty mighty Panthers. Yeah, Tristan's Pittsburgh Panthers. I mean, four four turnovers against Pitt. Come on, Tuck. He I will say he is tasked with doing a lot. Um, he has the ball every possession. He is the guy they decide to make the decision every time they can. Guys like that will have higher turnovers. I'm not making this comparison, but that argument always sticks out most to me when people were talking about Stephen Curry and if he could play point guard that junior year he came back at Davidson because, he, you know, if you want to pick on Steph Curry, it's that he, he looks like he needs to gain like 30 pounds, at mm-hmm. least in college, mm-hmm. and – he switched point guard and averaged like five, six turnovers a game, or it was it was pretty high, but his usage rate was like one hundred percent. Like he had it every time down the court. So like those guys, because they are in more actions, I think are going to naturally have more turnovers. Um, but you know, he's also I don't think a, a true true point. So it, yeah, it's a little bit of both. But I would I I still like the pick. My Thank my you. thing about Wake though is um, they have a non-conference strength of schedule in Kempom of 348. So, depending upon how this next uh, I don't know month and a half goes here, and they do play some pretty tough competition, if they're on the bubble, 
I don't know how safe of a pick they are to even get into the tournament at this point, but mm. you know, mm. I guess we'll see. I will I will say that Pittsburgh has a better defensive rating than Santa Clara does where Andrew Nemhart had four turnovers. Uh Asif, what's your pick? All right. Uh this is gonna be a bit of a pander pick. Uh this is gonna be a homer pick. I'm going to take and hope that they get a bid through the Ivy League. I am taking the University of Princeton. They are a top 60 offense in Ken Palm. They have wins over my beloved Beavers, South Carolina, Brian's squad, and they lost in double overtime to Minnesota. Um, they play a difficult uh, style to prepare for defensively. It's obviously like a modified Princeton offense. Lots of scissor cut action off of the high post entry. Um, Tosin, uh, who is, and I have no clue how to pronounce his last name, but he is a phenomenal passer and scorer. Um, one of the best offensive ratings for a high possession uh, percentage player over 28%. Um, he's a phenomenal player and they have really high level three point shooting. They're 17th in the country in three point shooting. So um, they are not a great defensive team, but if they get hot and they're a difficult team to prepare for, I mean, if uh, Gonzaga fans remember playing Bellarmine and the way that their cutting style worked, it was difficult to defend. And when you're playing in the tournament um, and you don't have much time to prepare and a team can shoot at a top 20 level, um, I think that they could legitimately knock off somebody in the tournament. All right. Well, I'm going to go with Iona. I'm going with the Gales. I'm going with Rick Patino here. I think defense in the tournament kind of evens the playing field a bit. They have big wins over Alabama already um, this year. I, I think I think that this team has enough athletes at a mid-major slot to kind of sneak in and, and get that upset in the first couple of rounds of the tournament. Who Who is their other big win other than Alabama, Josh? We're not going to talk about it. That was that was the only win I was going to talk about. And you know who else has a, a marquee win against Alabama? Georgia. <laughs> really, really talk. <laughs> Look, uh, I will. They, I, that's the only time I'll slander Rick Pitino on this podcast. I apologize. They they took down uh, Yale. It's a solid team. Harvard, you know. Could right. could Iona get an at-large bid? Is that insane? They, I think if they lose in the conference tournament, that'd be the only scenario in which they could. Because if it, obviously yeah. they get the auto bid, it's fine. But yeah, if they yeah. lose in the regular season, I don't think they can have two losses, basically, is what I'm getting I, at. Yeah. I don't know that Iona is going to lose against the rest yeah. of this, this conference season. I don't, I don't think so either. favored by quite a bit in every single game. Right. Like, it, I, think, I think they are a pretty safe bet. To, mm -hmm. Granted, anything can happen, but... That's a really well-coached team. I mean, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Almost like he's the best coach in college basketball. Hmm. My, mine's going to be South Dakota State. Um, when you're looking, I mean, when you're looking at upsets, you tend to want to look for weaker, high-seeded teams. Um, that that correlates a little bit more to upsets than like a strong, uh, strong lower-seeded team. However, you want the lower-seeded team to be a team that doesn't make mistakes on offense. <clears throat> South Dakota State is the best three-point shooting team in the country. They're top 25 in two-point percentage, which is good for top three effective field goal percentage behind Purdue and, and Gonzaga. Um, they don't turn the ball over a ton. 
their defense is weak. However, if they get a four seed, or if they get the 13 seed and go up against an LSU, for example, as the four seed, or they get a 12 and LSU is the five, 100 times out of 100, I'm picking South Dakota State in that game. Because if you go up against a team that struggles on offense, and granted, LSU has a good defense, but South Dakota State, I think, can put up enough points against a team like LSU that's also not going to put up a ton of points to get that upset. Um, and so if they encounter a weak team, and right now they're on a, a huge winning streak, they're going to probably carry a ton of momentum into, into the tournament, and their shooting is as good as it is. All it takes is one lull over the course of the game from the team they're playing in South Dakota State wins, and I don't know if, if it's even a close one. So I'm going to pick I, go with South Dakota State. I like that pick. Um, Austin, you love offense, and South Dakota State has six players in the top 500 and in O-rating in Ken Palm. So that's, that's, beautiful. that's a Let's legit be offense. I do also like defense. I'm just not <laughs> like – I'm not I'm a shocked. like Kyle, okay? I'm not like someone that enjoys watching Iowa State play zero offense. I'm sorry. Basketball is a beautiful game, and that beauty comes from offense and some defense as well. All right, Brian, who do you have for deep upset? Uh, the recent play may may put them in here, but I'm taking Colorado State. Um, I have not been shy about how good I think Colorado State can be this year. Talk about how there's not a lot of good guards in college basketball. Isaiah Stevens is really freaking good. The fact that Colorado State will have one of the best point guards out there, the fact they'll have a guy nobody really knows how to defend well, uh, and David Roddy, who uh, all Mountain West player, at this point probably not an All-American candidate, but was at one point earlier in the season. I know they've, they've lost recently, Colorado, Colorado State. All three of their losses, though, I think have a, a bit of a reason as to why they happen that goes beyond just Colorado State playing poorly. They got blown out by San Diego State in that first matchup, right? It was their second game back from a month-long COVID break. All the, the history and data we have from last year shows that that's going to be the game you, like, completely bottom out coming back. That's the one game Baylor lost last year was their second game after a COVID break. So I'm willing to write that off as that. These last two losses they have came home to UNLV, which is a bad loss, uh, and then at Wyoming, obviously, in overtime. Both those games, though, Bryce Hamilton had 45 points for UNLV. And then Maldonado had 35 for Wyoming. Like they, they were the victim of some great individual performances. And defense could get better, but those guys were also hitting tough shots and making plays. It wasn't necessarily Colorado State was leaving them wide open, obviously. Give me that duo. Give me that offense. I'll take the Rams. All right, Brian, you are going to be up next for the Kemba candidate. For those who might not know what the Kemba candidate is, we are talking about Kemba Walker and one singular player that is just unbelievable offensively and carries the load completely and takes their team to a national championship or a deep run in the tournament. Brian, who do you got? Well, I have the first pick, so I have to take Johnny Davis like by rule. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, you do. <laughs> He, he's the most obvious candidate. He's the reason why Wisconsin's a top 15 team. Uh, some have him in the top 10. Some people have them as one seeds, which is kind of puzzling at this point. Uh, the, the team around him, supporting cast around him, has stepped up over this last month. Brad Davison's playing his best basketball of his eight-year career. Uh, Tyler Wall has stepped up and has given them some punch in the front court as well. That's helped Wisconsin, I think, maintain this level. But if they're going to go on a, on a Kemba run – 
Johnny Davis is going to have to do what he did against Purdue, right? Where he is clearly the best player on the court and drops like 40. He's the one we've seen do that against high level competition. And we've seen him do it consistently. So give me Johnny Davis. Oh, it's my turn. And you, you, you stole it, Brian. Um, I had, what did you want me to do? Not take Johnny Davis? <laughs> no, it, it, it's the right pick. I, I'm going to go a little bit deeper. Um, and this might bite me in the ass, but I'm going to go with Will Richardson of Oregon. Ooh. If they get in the tournament, I mean, Oregon started off, you know, 12 games and they looked awful. Um, over the last eight, they've had one loss. And in that span, Will Richardson's averaging 19 points a game where he averaged 12 over the first 12, 12 games. So um, Will Richardson's offense for Oregon has been the reason why Oregon's clawed its way back into the tournament conversation. Uh, he's, he is carrying this team as, as the primary point guard um, or secondary, depending on, on the, the day with, with uh, Jacob Young. Um, but he's, he's their primary scorer. He's their primary weapon. And if I can't choose Johnny Davis and, and I want to go with a team that's not likely to have the breadth of scoring um, and, and the depth of scoring on their rosters, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with Will Richardson. I, I liked him preseason. He disappointed over the first 12 games, but we've seen over the last eight, what he can do when, when Oregon is winning and when he's playing really well. Connor, what does Oregon need to do in the Pac-12 to secure uh, an at-large bid you know i i think it's it's a lot of just stay the course um they they have a a bunch of road games coming up which which helps because it because it bumps up the quadrants of those games and they're they have a really tough three-game stretch at the end of february um to get through which is an away game against arizona and then they host ucla and usc if they can get through the rest of those games unscathed um, maybe, I mean, they could possibly lose the road game against Colorado and still get in or the, or even the home game against Stanford. Um, but, but if they get relatively unscathed and take at least one of those games against Arizona, UCLA and USC, um, they'll be a low seed, uh, for sure. But I think, you know, as long as they're not losing dumb games to Cal, Cal or Utah or Arizona state or something like that, I, I think they're pretty solid, um, Again, there'll be a first four team or one of those last four buys, but uh, the path is there and it's not as narrow as, as it is for some of the other teams. Um, like you were mentioning at the beginning of, of this podcast in San Francisco, um, their, their path to, to the tournament really can come with two or three losses. Mm -hmm. All right, let's hear what Josh's pick is going to be for Kemba Candidate. So I had, this was really tough because I, there's two guys I really, there's one guy I really think that a lot of people are sleeping on. That's, that's Keegan Murray. Um, but I, I had to go with the, the shoe in Ochai Abaji. I mean, is there a guy who puts up bigger performances against top talent than, than Ochai? Like if you, if you go through and look at his, his last several games, he, he dropped 37 on Texas tech, uh, 29 on Kansas state in a game where Kansas was legitimately getting pushed. Um, he, he had kind of a poor game against, against Kentucky and you could make an argument. That's why, why Kansas lost that game. But 
it, it's his, I think it's his shooting for me that really pushes him over the edge. This guy is, is shooting roughly 46 and a half percent on the year from three. Um, he's got a top 60 effective field goal per, uh, percentage in the country. Like if you are looking for a consistent guy, who's going to drop points in, in big games in March, I think that's Ochai. And I think Kansas is going to have the kind of seeding where maybe they could slip under the radar for some people and make a deep run um, that maybe people weren't expecting uh, because of some of the issues they've had with Remy Martin and, and David McCormick this year. But I really, I think Ochai Abaji, he, he's as good as it gets this year in the country, right up there with Johnny Davis. For sure. I mean, he's uh, next to John Davis. He's like kind of the obvious, obvious pick here for Kemba Canada and Kansas without him. I mean, they did beat Iowa State, but let's be real. As Connor has told us over and over and over again, Iowa State is a fraud. Um, so it is my turn, and most people would assume I would take a young man playing his basketball in Newark, but I'm going to change it up. I'm going to talk about Ben Howland's glow up and his favorite player, Iverson Molinar. I just can't help but take a man named Iverson. He is balling out this year. He has an offensive rating of 122.5. His possession percentage is 26, so he is taking a ton of possession, um, playing very efficiently. He is shooting uh, 88% from the free throw line. He is almost shooting 60% from two as a guard. His assist rate is in the top 150 in the country. He has a pretty good turnover rate. Um, so far, he has been phenomenal for Ben Howland, and he has propelled Mississippi State to have a top 25 offense in the country, which is not exactly the calling card of Ben Howland. Um, so I think the Mississippi State has some pretty good wins. They came close against Kentucky. Um, they beat Alabama, which, you know, I, how much that means, I'm not sure. Um, they were close against Colorado State. Like, they have some legitimate wins, uh, and I think Iverson could definitely take them to maybe one or two victories in the tournament. That is a deep, deep cut. <laughs> that is a deep I told cut. you, I'm going with Spice. I'm letting you guys take all the normal folks, and I'm going deep cuts and Spice. Okay, so I have a question before I pick. When when we're talking about Kemba, Kemba candidates, are we saying candidates who will, will spur their team to a long run or as long as they're in the tournament, they will be the producing factor past like the first week if they were to Yeah, like somebody somebody that is going to capture the imagination of America like and be Max, like, wow. Max yeah. Abe Smith is yeah. a perfect example. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, because ultimately I want to take Keegan Murray just for the fact that he is that offense producer, but at the same time, I don't believe in Iowa whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the idea of Fran McCaffrey playing in his second week of uh, NCAA tournament basketball just does not compute no, to me. I, I can't imagine it. So I'm even gonna make it. Two Spice, brother. What is going to be the most fun thing to capture America's imagination? Uh, I really like the idea of Alondis Williams, you know, going on a run. <laughs> I, I just still can't believe he didn't make that Bob Cousy list. I think that he is a legit, legit uh, uh, freak of a player in terms of, and uh, in, in his whole uh, play style and everything pretty much aligns with Kemba in terms of the minutes he plays, the possession percentage, the shot percentage. 
Um, he's he's a he's a threat through and through. I think that um, if Wake Forest or anyone in the ACC not named Duke were to do anything, it would be him. Tuck becoming a big ACC guy in front of our eyes. Yeah, yeah, out of nowhere. I really don't know what happened to me. Where's the respect for Charlie Moore? Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. Miami really let me down today. Yeah. Uh, Miami today is the reason why I did not pick Miami and Charlie Moore. <laughs> yeah, I um, probably shouldn't have put a future on Miami. So um, the last section that we want to uh, deliberate over is the most likely top two seed to be upset the first week. So we're thinking some classic, classic letdowns from some big time, big time programs. Now, judging by uh, where Heat Checks Lucas Harkins has these uh, seedings at, we're looking at, for uh, from my perspective, Auburn, Gonzaga, Baylor, Kansas, Arizona, Kentucky, UCLA, and Purdue. And I've had a love affair throughout this season with the work that Gonzaga South has been doing and Tommy Lloyd, but... I'm at a threshold now. I, I think that Arizona is is really showing that they're that their high powered offense, high transition game, solid rim protection isn't smoke and mirrors necessarily, but they missed the guard play that a tournament team desperately needs. Um looking at Kerr Crease's game, I think that while he is a solid player and he does give that spice that a great team needs. Against top 30 Ken Palm defenses, Kerr Creesa is shooting 19% from three and is averaging three and a half turnovers. That is a, a combination of basketball that doesn't really elicit uh, high-powered dreams for myself personally. So I could absolutely see a situation where they run into a juggernaut defense. I... I I want to be as spicy and say, looking at this, Boise State, Leon Rice could shock the world considering the level of defense that they play. Well, Gonzaga on Gonzaga crime right there. Gonzaga, Gonzaga on Gonzaga crime. Uh, Boise State's going to have to score some points, which is not necessarily easy for them to do. But I just really don't know what to make of this Arizona program once the bright lights and a high-powered defense is going up against them. I wrote about this earlier in the season, um, that Tennessee loss. They played a softer schedule for the most part uh, in the non-conference and did what you expect great teams to do. Dragged them the way Gonzaga drags, drags those teams, right? And then they beat Michigan, which at the time we were like, oh, okay. Doesn't mean as much now. You look back at the better defenses they've played, the offense has gone from elite to average. And one of the poor poorest three-point shooting offenses and one with one of the highest turnover rates since your identity is to be elite offensively if you're just average with significant issues obviously not going to be as effective i think we saw that against ucla they just weren't able to get anything going you know uh, ben matherin is awesome no one else in that team is really in a point where they can consistently create good shots for themselves you know the system that they run is awesome. And they have the athletes and the length that they're scary in transition, but um, it, the shooting hasn't made the half court part work against those better teams that make them slow down. I think there's also a case to be made that like you were saying, the, the inconsistency across the board, a lot of that could have to do with the youth. I mean, they're one of the youngest teams in the country and um, you know, they do have the, 
the athletes, but you know, outside of like you said, Matherin and maybe Coloco, like I'm just not seeing it across the Yeah, and even like Dalen Terry is supposed to be that guy that's really athletic that could potentially create his own shot. And he's been solid this year, but I'm not sure that I completely trust him in March when Kirk Risa is just not getting it done to be that kind of secondary creator alongside Ben Matherin. Um, we have not seen that level of play from him yet. Five star by cart. <laughs> All right, let's go with jo- Josh. Who's your pick? Um, so I've been talking them up a lot this year, and but I feel like they're a Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde team, and a lot of that has to do with injuries and whether they can stay healthy. I gotta go with Kentucky here. I think that Kentucky is one of those teams that could easily lose to somebody like Murray state in the first round, or, you know, I don't know, like some, some team that that has some chops or they could go to a final four and potentially challenge for a national championship. I think another piece to that too, is like the whole Shaden sharp discussion. Like is Shaden going to play this year? Is he going to be that, um, extra depth or piece at at the point guard position or the the backcourt that's going to be able to help keep Ty Ty and Severe from having to put in so many minutes. I just I don't know if I trust that even if he shows up that he's going to play the level of defense that Kentucky needs to to get get as far. And then is he going to mess with chemistry and you know things like that. Um I also think that John Calipari is is not I don't know. I don't feel like he's as vested in this program as he was maybe 10 years ago. Like, I, th- I think the man is starting to, you know, fall off his game a little bit. Uh, I'll just, I'll go Kentucky. Is that what you're saying? Cal's going soft? I, he, he literally lied the other day and said that Kentucky hasn't had a bad practice all year when he literally said before the Duke game that they had a terrible That's practice. That's what coaches so. do. They lie. They lie to the media. That's their job. This is a Rick Pitino stand in the floor. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You learn from the best. All right. Um, There's a team that I'd love to take, but for karma's sake, I hope that none of us take this team. Um, So please don't talk about a team that may reside in Waco. Uh, I'm going to take another Big 12 team, and I'm going to say Kansas, a team that I've been slandering for quite some time. Obviously, Ochai Agbaji is phenomenal, uh, but David McCormick is not good. Christian Brown is not that good. Uh, I do not trust Mitch Lightfoot. Jalen Wilson doesn't really show up. And their point guard play is extremely suspect. Uh, Bill Self does not trust Remy Martin. I don't trust Remy Martin. Nobody should trust Remy Martin. Uh, Dewan Harris is nice, uh, but he is not going to be a guard that is going to win you a tournament game. Um, and their defense is not good, so it's not going to be able to buoy their offensive issues uh, if Agbaji is not playing out of his mind. Um, so that is my team that is most likely to be upset as a one or a two seed. Is it, is it my turn? Yeah, it's, it's all you, Connor. I'm surprised no one picked Purdue. Purdue. I'm picking Purdue. Oh! talked him up all season Uh, but as Brian knows the one thing that frustrates the hell out of me with Purdue uh, more than anything else is that unlike you see with teams like Auburn and Gonzaga and I truly think that that talent wise and ceiling wise Purdue is up there with those two they have absolutely zero killer instinct they get a big lead 
They don't step on your throats. They let you back in. We've seen it time and time again in this big 10 season where they let teams that are on the ropes that they should have beat by 25, 30 when all is said and done back in the game and get close to losing. And, and as we've seen at the end of games, Matt Painter, not a great last possession play caller. So if they can get, can get, you know, if they get a game against an eight or a nine seed where that team can go on runs and that team can turn Purdue over because Purdue can't get back into the game either as easily, I don't think as an Auburn or, or a Gonzaga because they don't, their defense doesn't turn over mm-hmm. other teams as well. So if, if they get into a game with a team that can go on the, those, uh, what, what, what was it called in the Gonzaga game? The spurtability. If they oh, get God. a team that can go on a, a 15 to five run or something, Purdue's in really big trouble because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how big their lead is. They're like Iowa from last year. It doesn't matter how big that lead is. Um, they could give it up like that. So I, I'm going with Purdue. I, I think even if the other three hadn't been picked, Purdue probably would have been my pick um, pretty close to Arizona, but just because I see no killer instinct from this team. And, and that's something you need to have, especially when you're going up against a, a hungry eight or nine seed that knows that they have the talent to at least run with you for 40 minutes. I feel like this was faded and I'm so proud of you right now, Connor. I really am. Connor, I have two very important questions for you. The first is, who is a better end-of-game coach, Matt Painter or Quanzo Martin? Brian knows how I feel about Quanzo Martin. (laughs) I just just don't think he's as good a coach as people say he is. Um, Matt Painter, I think, is a really good coach, and he can game plan really well. It's those high-pressure situations where his teams tend to – tend to fall on their face. Um, and so as an overall coach, I think Matt Painter is better, which is why I think he's probably a better end of game coach. He doesn't make the coaching mistakes that Quansel Martin has made over the past couple of weeks, but, um, but uh, his, it, like you mentioned, his, uh, you know, after timeout end of game, give the ball, run the ball around for 15 seconds and then try and get a last second heat from Jaden and Ivy mm-hmm. only works so much. Um, and so unless Purdue wins that game, that second round game by, you know, 10 to 15, um, it, I, I think they probably, if it's a close game, they're probably on the losing end. Okay. Here's my other question. Why the hell are there two best players coming off the bench? Brian and I had this discussion on the podcast on on Monday. Um, Well, Travion Williams is coming off the bench because you can't can't play both Edie and Williams at the same time. And I think Edie's just so dominant, especially from, you know, at the beginning of game situations. Um, You can bring Williams off the bench and he can be kind of that that post passer. He can do more than just be an over-the-top scoring threat and and, and kind of body on defense uh, in the middle. Um, Jaden Ivey, we have no idea why he's starting over both uh, Thompson and Hunter, um, or not starting, why he's benched, why both of them are starting over Jaden Ivey. Probably has something to do with something behind the scenes, uh, sending a message, but I I agree with you. Jaden Ivey should be starting, and he's playing starter minutes. He's just not starting. So whether it's because Matt Painter thinks that there's some sort of strategy in bringing your best player off the bench and having him go up against, you know, the, the second rotation for teams, um, but obviously, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, 
it's not working as well as you would have hoped. So um, I just, I just don't, I, 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 their ceiling is so high when they're on, they are one of the best teams in the country, but, um, and it's not even the losses that did it for me. It's, it's honestly, it was the game against Illinois and it was the game against Ohio state that, that really kind of, even though they were both wins, they were wins that I was really frustrated with Purdue. Brian, who do you have? Um, well, I kind of have to pick a one seed basically. So yeah, you suck me there. One point I did want to make about Purdue because they were first on my board too. Um, there's been one team in the last 20 years that has made the final four with a defense ranked worse than Purdue's right now. And that team had Dwayne Wade. Is Jaden Ivey Dwayne Wade? No. Eh. No. <laughs> <laughs> that defense is an issue and something that, that needs to be fixed here in the next uh, next month, month and a half or so. I'm picking the the least bad of bad options here, but I'm going to go with Baylor. Um, Auburn, <laughs> Auburn and Gonzaga are on a tier of their own. We're not uh, we're not touching them. Austin, don't be upset. He's not he's not a Gonzaga fan. So it's, <laughs> if anything, it's Baylor's going to crush South Carolina next year or something like. That. I almost uh, I almost made a joke that I was going to pick Gonzaga because who have they played? But, um, <laughs> nobody want to do that slanderous brian it's no, fine no i i do not fall in that camp i love making that joke though because i feel like when people do you automatically expose yourself as not knowing basketball um i'm taking baylor uh, again auburn and gonzaga on a tier of their own we're not touching those uh so ucla is the only other one available and i trust ucla's floor at the very least um i think their ceiling can be final four good uh, but i know from a floor standpoint uh, they're going to handle their business against lesser lesser competition. That leaves Baylor, who a month ago was the best team in the country and rolling. Uh, since then, they've limped a little bit. Part of that's due to injuries. Part of that is because Texas Tech, in the second half of that win that gave Baylor their first loss of the season, uh, played a really packed-in defense when they turned that game around. Baylor's offense is very much predicated uh, on driving kick, getting the defense to collapse and finding open shooters or cutters. Um, so Texas Tech, Texas Tech's elite defense, basically just shut it down and said, you're not going to do that. And Baylor's offense struggled. Teams since then have copied it, have been able to execute it to varying degrees, but that's been the key on how you slow Baylor. And this team, Akinjo is the only guy who, when offense breaks down or play breaks down, can go get you something. Uh, Matthew Meyer can. Um, he will, he'll do it a whole bunch in a five minute stretch and then he won't do it again for the other 35 minutes of the game. Um, but that has limited them somewhat. So uh, again, I'm picking the, the worst or, or the least bad of some bad options here, but I do see a scenario where if a, a defensive team like Boise state uh, or even a, a St. Mary's falls into that eight, nine game or is in the seven, 10 game and pops out and plays Baylor as one or two, I think that could give Baylor some real issues. That's think, a nightmare scenario for St. Mary's to take out Baylor. Like, it's great, <laughs> but also what a nightmare for me. Then I have to respect Randy Bennett? Like, please, God, no. I think, I think that's a really good pick, though, to be honest, because I think everyone assumed that Baylor was like, how Gonzaga just keeps reloading like every one of, you know, every year now, like that Baylor's reload was on the same level. And I don't think it was like losing somebody like Davion Mitchell 
and Jared Butler and Macy Oteague and Mark Vidal. Like there, there was so much uh, intangibles that, that fell off that roster after last year. And I also think that they really lost a lot on offense. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the shooting level of this team is nowhere near what last year's was. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. That's, that's honestly the best option that was left out of the group. I would, I would yeah. also, I would also add that, uh, Baylor is one of the worst free throw shooting teams in the country. They shoot 67.3%. So the idea of, you know, something going down to the wire and a team hitting clutch free throws to win a game. I don't know if that's your team to pick. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a a very very fair point. And outside of projecting uh, like a Houston or a Villanova to make it, because I think both of those would have been easy picks. Um, Mm. But, uh, you know, they probably, well, Houston might be, end up the two, depending on, they might not lose the rest of the way. Yeah, but I, think Villanova, I think Villanova um, has a couple more losses probably mm-hmm. uh, on their schedule. So, so they're probably going to stay at three or a four, but um, yeah, no, I, of the four potential one seeds that were remaining, um, I think Baylor was probably the best option uh, just because like you said, I trust UCLA to to not lose dumb. Um, I don't really trust them to to make a deep deep run, um, but I I trust them to at least get to the second weekend and, and we'll see if they can knock off a a you know a, a four three seed or something like that. Can we talk about how weird it is that Baylor's like two biggest players? I mean, you could debate uh, Meyer or Flagler or Cryer, but. Akinjo and Meyer both are the only two players in the rotation that are not in the top 500 of Ken Palm's offensive rating. They're at 109 and Akinjo is at 105. And then everybody else is like pretty high offensive rating. And yet those are probably the two most important offensive players for them. That's such a strange uh, thing because Akinjo is the creator on that team. Um, and if my, if they're going to go deep, Meyer needs to be an elite scoring wing because it's just not going to come from Soan or Kendall Brown, at, you know, a 15 to 20 point uh, game. I just don't really see that happening. We were told Matthew Meyer was supposed to be the next Adam Morrison. Oh, God. <laughs> he played like it at times. I mean, he just only he... does it at times, though. That's the issue. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he's as cringy as Adam Morrison was. I don't know. Yeah, and I, and I think the issue you have with um, Akinjo, it, it's just the way he plays and what he's being asked to do um, doesn't lend itself to being particularly efficient. Um, I mean, he can get you big shots and he can create a ton of points, mm-hmm. but that's going to come with him having the ball in his hand a ton. Yep. And so, um, you know, when, you, when you're a, a player like Flagler or Cryer, and, and I'm not saying that they're role players in the traditional sense because obviously they're you know two of the best role players they they could start on pretty much any team um mm-hmm. outside of of you know a gonzaga or a, probably even gonzaga um at times but uh is that they're gonna get set up more efficiently and more effectively than someone like akinjo who has to create his own shot at six foot one yep. and that's the issue with him is that his height doesn't really lend itself to creating his own shot and unlike Flagler and Cryer, who are also not tall, not you know particularly lengthy, um, they're they uh, more of their shots come off of, of set pieces, so they 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 have a little bit of an easier time 
finding that effective shot um, where Akinjo again, uh, we saw it at Georgetown. We saw it at Arizona uh, mm -hmm. when he's asked to do things and, and he's willing to do those things. Uh, his offensive rating is probably going to go down a little bit because he's going to be, when he's on the floor, it's going to be a little bit less efficient. Yeah. And we saw in those like end of game situations, I can think of Texas tech, I believe it was Oklahoma state. Like they really struggled to get a good look at the end of the game. And that was on a shoulders and, you know, they lost those games uh, because they just didn't get good shot creation at the end of the game. Sweet. Well, thank you guys so much for participating in this little experiment. I think it was illuminating and gave us some things to look forward to the rest of the way. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us on. I appreciate it. I had, had a lot of fun. Yeah. No, it, like I said at the beginning, it was, it's, it's been a ton of fun. Um, it, it's always good to, to talk about, uh, talk about teams that, that we like and dislike and maybe uh, shed some of our, our thoughts and frustrations on teams that we've been talking up all season. Well, if you want to catch more of uh, Connor and Brian's work, you can read them at heatcheckcbb.com. You can find Brian's tweets at broth33 and Connor at condorianfm and listen to the Hope and Roth podcast anywhere you find podcasts. <laughs>